Hey everyone, this is Eric here. We are um, Higher Connections, of course. I don't know what episode this is. I always say that, but I really, really don't at this point. We're in the we're in the high twenties, I think. So uh, welcome <laughs> uh, everyone who's listening. So we have a really cool guest on today. Um, not really a cannabis angle necessarily. A lot of our guests in the past have been involved in the cannabis space. This one, um, my guest today. Uh, seems to um, have some opinions and thoughts on cannabis, which I'm sure we'll get into, but that's not really what he does. So I'll let him introduce himself, and his name is Nathan Riley, and he's a board-certified OBGYN, uh, and I'm, I'm sure has some stories for us. Um, just so you know, Nathan, welcome to Higher Connections. Um, I have three kids, uh, 13, uh, 10, and a four-year-old daughter, and all of our births were natural but with the help of some very strong medication <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah i'm sure you have some stories to uh to tell us but welcome and thanks for joining so why don't you give the audience a little bit of background yourself what you do and kind of who you are yeah my name's my name's nathan riley thank you for the intro um i'm a board certified um OBGYN, but i'm also a board certified hospice and palliative care doctor so i take care of birth and i do death and i use a lot of uh, functional and lifestyle medicine in between. Let's just say that. So I, I do generally work with women, but I also work with a lot of men. Cannabis comes up pretty routinely for me. And I happen to be one of those doctors out there who's like loudly and proudly using cannabis for a variety of reasons, recommending it to clients, recommending it to um, families as means of helping their loved ones at end of life. I also do a lot of fertility work and a lot of men are, are maybe... I won't say abusing it, but they're sort of misusing cannabis and it actually can, can actually lead to some issues with sperm production and whatnot. So I'm pretty versed in this space. I've got a really good friend named Ryan Sprague who has a, a, um, a, he calls it the Conscious Cannabis Collective and he and I have gotten to know each other for many years. He actually is the one who supplies me with flour and uses biogeometry and biodynamics and all these really, really cool practices. So I'm actually pretty well invested into the cannabis space. I am always um, speaking to couples around the safety of using cannabis in pregnancy and postpartum while breastfeeding, which of course, as you know, having gone through this three times, people make you kind of feel like everything's unsafe. You know, everything's unsafe. But for many people, the benefits of using cannabis are going to outweigh the risks. And so I don't have to get into what the literature and everything says if you don't want me to, but I generally think that if cannabis is an important part of your life, whether it's a symptom management mechanism, you know, a sort of tool, or if it's helping you connect intimately with your partner, with yourself, then it, the benefits probably outweigh any risks because we haven't really been able to document any significant risks. So I do a variety of things, but natural birth and, and postpartum care and fertility work are three of the big things that I'm doing on a regular basis right now. And so talk about your family. I think from what I read, um, you have two kids, is that right? Did I say that correctly? Two little girls. I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Interesting. And, and I guess it, for you and, and your wife, I assume you're married, um, do you or have you used cannabis post-birth? Uh, or, or I guess from a personal perspective, how has cannabis kind of factored into your story and your wife's story? I would say we probably use cannabis you know, once per day, you know, probably, um, if it's not every day, it's most days, you know, it does help us with 
the realities of becoming a parent are that, you know, energetically your relationship changes. Everybody, you know, knows that. But whenever you actually get into that space, sometimes it actually is hard to connect, you know, to be intimate because you've got your attention is just elsewhere. And then you try to get together at the end of the night and you just want to watch Netflix and go to bed. And sometimes, sometimes we can spice things up a little bit by uh, lowering our inhibitions a little bit, kind of being able to lean into, you know, romance a little bit more easily with cannabis. But that was throughout pregnancy. Uh, my, my my wife also found that it helped her with sleep and, and with certain other things. Some of my clients use it for nausea, for example. And even when she was breastfeeding and everything else, I mean, we used more than just cannabis in our, in our pregnancies, but cannabis was kind of like a mainstay. So that never changed. And it actually, I think, has been very, very helpful for us in the postpartum space, despite, you know, the, 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 the scare that maybe some of it will go to the baby. Question is, if it does go to the baby, what's the big deal? I haven't really been able to, you know, nobody's given me a really solid answer as to why that would be so problematic, especially if mom and dad are connecting and intimate and having sex again and really enjoying one another's bodies. Like that actually is really beneficial to the family as well is our connection. So um, again, everything is risk benefits. It's not, there's nothing like out there that I would say, well, there are some things, but it's hard to say that cannabis is like a hard yes or a hard no. You know, it's really depends on the person. So that's interesting. So, so you, you both, or she, I guess, used cannabis during pregnancy. If she did, what trimester was it in or was it all throughout? throughout. In fact, I think the second of our two kids was conceived on a strain of, of cannabis, of flower that we really, really loved. And it came from a farmer out in Colorado, actually. And um, I think she was conceived on that, that, Specific medicinal, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we we reversed. You know, I kind of went back from the calendar. We're like, oh my gosh, that's (laughs) around the time we're smoking that stuff. And, anyways, uh, yeah. I mean, we we have been using it throughout in in various forms. You know, we're very picky. We're very picky with the type of cannabis that we use. We want to make sure that it's something that really feels good. Doesn't make us too paranoid. Doesn't make us, you know, whatever. You know, there's there's plenty of varieties out there. We try to use stuff that's totally natural. We don't want to use anything that's like that Delta 8, Frankenstonian, whatever. We use yeah. all natural stuff. And if we use gummies or, you know, edibles or whatever, it's usually, again, from a very reliable source, something somebody that we know is made or whatever. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, I, I, I honestly, to be honest with you, I have not done a ton of research into, you know, the effects of cannabis on, on newborns. I did some, obviously, a lot of research for my book just in terms of the impacts of of cannabis on adult brains and adult bodies, yeah. but not on yeah. newborns. W- what have you seen? Because I, I remember seeing an article from maybe earlier this year that talked about how cannabis use can affect affect the placenta. Um, but obviously, I think more research needs to be done. What just out of curiosity, yeah. what have you seen from your research in terms of how cannabis might affect uh, a <clears throat> newborn? Yeah, that's a really good question. By the way, you sent me a PDF version of your book. And it was amazing. It's it's very well done. Oh, like, it's nice when books are written like that, where it's like, there's not a publisher telling you you need to fluff this up with an extra 50 pages of <laughs> stuff that doesn't belong there. Like, you actually did a really nice job of kind of a concise, straightforward read. So anybody out there who's interested, go and get, go and get the Eric's book. <laughs> that's right. Wait, hold, but, on, hold yeah. on. I have a, a sound for you. Hold on. Yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> Please <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, you know, what we always have to bear in mind in the United States, we're especially guilty of this is we like to say, well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Um, evidence comes in three forms. 
The first is from clinical trials. The second is from your, your experience as a client, right? I don't say patient because most people I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of are not sick. You're not a patient, you're a client. You're paying me for services. Um, so let's say that there was a study that came out of the New England Journal that said if you eat a banana per day, that um, your eyes turn blue, right? I don't know. Sounds silly, right? But there's all kinds of weird stuff published out there. <laughs> so I say, hey, you you came to me to help you get blue eyes, right? And I say, you need to eat a banana every day. Look at this, what the study shows. And they're like, okay. And they take it, and they have an anaphylactic reaction, and they die. And their partner comes and says, well, you said to eat the banana every day, but they, they have a history of like a really bad allergic reaction to bananas. And I was like, well, shit, that, that study obviously didn't apply to that person. This sounds like a completely silly analogy, but this is exactly yeah. how the data is misused, is that it cannot be individualized to everybody. And that is not evidence-based medicine. That's one leg of evidence-based medicine. Your experience as a client is the other leg, and my experience as a clinician is the third leg. So having said all of that, there are very few people who would you know, happily volunteer for a randomized controlled trial to see what's going to happen to my baby if I smoke you know, three joints per day or something like that, right? Um, however, you probably know this, this, this literature. There is some data that has come out of countries where cannabis is a mainstay of the culture, namely Jamaica, where they've looked at 30 women carrying babies, smoking cannabis regularly, self-reported, 30 women carrying babies who are self-reporting no cannabis use. And then they look at what, what happens with these kids. No major issues, no like pregnancy losses that was you know, a preponderance in one group or the other. But then they actually looked at how the kids were doing on some basic childhood development assessments. And at the five-year mark, if anything, the kids born to the women who were using cannabis, smoking cannabis, we're not talking gummies and all this, smoking cannabis, actually did a little bit better. Now, who knows whether or not those assessments were great or whatever. It does, that's not really the point. The point is, is that we did not see, based on this one study, a demonstrable difference in how this kid de developed as a result of being exposed in utero to cannabis. Do we need more, more research? Absolutely. Like we need more research in virtually everything in our world and not too many people are willing to pay for the cannabis thing. Partly because you can grow cannabis in your backyard and has all these therapeutic benefits. Right. There's no pharmaceutical company that can profit off of that. Um, I don't think that's always the thing. I think we also have the stigmatization around drugs, specifically cannabis, psychedelics, and some other things all of which are a routine part of my practice. Um, but the data certainly doesn't say for sure that this is dangerous. And that's what people like to say, you know? So what I say is that the evidence or the, it's incumbent on you if you wish to deviate in some way from nature and you want to recommend pharmaceuticals over a plant that grows like a weed. That's why it's called weed everywhere. If you want to use the pharmaceuticals, you have to demonstrate without a doubt that that's better for that indication than this naturally growing thing that Mother Nature has provided us in almost every corner of North America, free of charge. So my, my position has been, again, it comes back down to the risks and benefits. I can use that data. And, and a lot of those, there are other studies. A lot of the American studies have shown that babies tend to be smaller due to the placenta, not, you know, having some, you know, spitfire, right? But I'm not totally convinced. You know, I have a lot of friends in my circles who are using quite a bit of cannabis and they're having beautiful births. So the question is, if a person in the United States is using cannabis kind of subversive, sub counterculture, this person's also not eating well, maybe, and they're doing cocaine on the side, like who knows, who knows, but we just don't have a very clear answer as to whether or not in the United States, if cannabis leads to any neonatal issues, I'm certainly not convinced. Okay. And, and that's great. I mean, look, as I said, I did a 
research for the book, but I'm an accountant, right? I know numbers. So when I start doing this research, you know, I try to go right to the conclusion because, you know, all the stuff in between is kind of gobbledygook to me. But I mean, your background, you are an MD. So just to be clear, when you state all these studies and the research you've done, you've done, you have background in this and you know what, what they're saying. But what is your background? I mean, where did you start and kind of how did you get into this this area of, of midwife? Is it midwifery? What do they call it? Uh, midwifery, yeah. Midwifery. I, I, I can't call myself that because that would be kind of a an insult to the traditional, the lineages of midwives across the world. But sure, I sure wish I maybe would have pursued that title instead of MD. I am an OBGYN, an obstetrician, which is really the medicalized, pathologized form of birth work in the United States. Right. But I became super disillusioned with that very early on because it was, again, it was us intervening in a natural process that didn't need any intervention and us kind of touting ourselves as heroes because of how interventive we could be. And in some ways, the best OBGYNs, the Harvard, the Hopkins, these, these like prestigious places, these are the people that have been able to intervene more than anybody else. And they're just showing their trophy for how much they, they can intervene, you know, and, 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 and um, give people the result of healthy mom, healthy baby at the end. Right. The problem with that is that you don't get to really know your, your, your clients whenever you're taking care of them within the medical industrial complex because you're seeing people every, you know, five, five minutes, seven minutes per visit. Midwives get to spend 90 minutes with you at a time. And that's generally what I do. The thing midwives aren't doing is a lot of lifestyle modification and education, which is my other background is like, how do I get my physical equipment working as well as possible? to avoid a lot of the, you know, avoidable diseases that we suffer from in, in, in the West. So I kind of combine a midwifery approach with a functional and lifestyle medicine approach. And I've got the experience of seeing the, the horrific things happen in the hospital. So I know how to use scalpels and sutures and medications and emergency things. I just rarely ever have to do that because I get people as healthy as possible beforehand, before they even get to their birth. So we can avoid some of those, those catastrophic things altogether. So that's what my practice looks like. That's kind of where my interest was. And then, of course, I got into psychedelics and cannabis and all kinds of other fun things along the way because I actually found that those were novel therapeutics or things that I, I, despite all of my 14 years of school and all of that, I didn't really have an answer to a lot of that stuff. Cannabis and, and some of these other therapeutics, psycho, you know, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies, those were kind of the ticket out for a lot of people with some other refractory issues. Interesting. Yeah, I, and I'm sure if you've listened to a couple of the podcasts, you know, we tried to talk about the benefits of cannabis. And, <clears throat> you know, in the book, we talk about the benefits to me and to my relationship versus alcohol, which I had consumed for, for many, many years and just had mm-hmm. enough of it. But in terms of the benefits that you see, maybe not medically, but to your relationship, you talked about just the connections and, and feeling closer to your significant other. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because again, it's something that me and my wife Alexandra have talked about, but I feel like maybe getting another example of someone that is highly connected um, because or uh, in lieu of some other things that you maybe stop doing like liquor. But how is this, in fact, is how has cannabis kind of positively benefited your relationship? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, I'll start by just being completely vulnerable here. You know, a lot of men have, uh, issues with performance in the bedroom. And that doesn't mean like they can't get a hard on or they can't, you know, whatever they can't ejaculate or whatever. It could also mean that they have this sort of anticipatory anxiety around performance, right? We've all watched porn. Many of us, when we were young, porn just comes your way. It's just a part of being an adolescent boy in the United States. Never watched it. 
I'm sure you never saw porn ever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you see what that's like out there and you're like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be able to do is to like have sex for an hour straight or, or you know, whatever. Like there's all sorts of perversions sort of, I, I don't mean perversions like porn is a perversion. I mean, there's, there's a perverted sort of sense of what it means to be a lover. And so as you get older and as your relationship grows and you get more com comfortable in your relationship, your sort of confidence in being able to please your woman and all this Casanova kind of language that we were raised with, you start to have your, your foundation shook a little bit. Add to that the stress of, of your career. For me, it was 100-hour work weeks and residency, um, just pushing myself to the absolute limits, like three to four hours of sleep per night and just when you're 22 in college, you can just, you could stay up all night, every night. No Adderall for me. I was never drinking coffee. I was like all natural yeah. masochist, right? And, yeah. and um, what ended up developing early in my wife and I, in our relationship, we met when we were 16. Oh, wow. We were like, you know, just horny as hell for one another in the car, in the whatever. I mean, like it was just, just what it was like for most of us. Uh, to be 16 well, then, again, huh? Yeah, to be 16 again and just like going at it every moment, right? Um, so what ends up, you know, when did it ended up happening for me is I ended up developing like a, a sort of premature ejaculation pattern. And I think it was a lot of sympathetic overdrive, sympathetic tone, always being stressed out, always having somewhere to be, always doing something. I mean, I'm a freaking doctor. Like you guys, we're not like, we're not like sitting around getting high in, in, in college. It's not generally the path, you know, where you're just kind of chilling out. So. I developed that and it became an issue that kind of came and went with stressful periods. And it really started fracturing my relationship with my wife. And um, we did have a period of time where we separated. I went to med school. She stayed in Pittsburgh and we, we kind of just did our own thing. And I kind of got my mojo back because I like took the brakes off. I'd stopped doing Ironman distance triathlon. I was in med school, but it was like way easier than college had been because I was just working so hard to get into med school. So to answer your question, what really I think ultimately happened with cannabis was that it actually helped me lean into the experience more, to be more present with the experience, to be more just engaged with how her skin felt against my skin, to get out of my head and really into my body, you know, into my into my heart and kind of just letting my instincts kind of drive the process. And whenever she was also feeling a little bit it allowed us to connect in ways that kind of got our insecurities out of the way. It, it, it gave us like a little bit of, it wasn't even confidence. It was just like connecting again. It was like a, a bit of a unity. The other thing I'll say, so the premature ejaculation thing resolved actually with the help of cannabis and also taking care of my lifestyle and getting my sleep and everything in order. But it was also like enjoyable again. Like it wasn't a matter of performing. It was just a matter of connecting. And the other, the other thing I'll add to that is with alcohol, you go to a party. We've all been there with us. I've stopped drinking myself because you're never, almost never your best self, whatever you're drinking. And you go to a party and you go to the drinks and you just, you're just drinking. And then you grab another one. You're just drinking. It's this mechanical thing. With cannabis, you really can't just keep hitting the cannabis. Like you end up just stoned out of your mind on the couch that's not the way to go at a party so you have to be actually a little bit more conscious and intentional with it it goes the same with intimacy so for us it was like hey do you want to do you want to like you wanna smoke a little bit yeah let's smoke a little bit. and then it's like something we're doing together as opposed to this automatic reflex of reaching for the glass of wine or the drink or the you know the mixers or whatever so for us it was a 
uh, it was actually very, very helpful. And it continues to be very helpful for us because no relationship is without its, without its troubles. And um, the intentional connection that we have with one another through connecting intentionally with cannabis is, is actually really serving us right now. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the connections, whether it's physically or spiritually, um, are mm-hmm. something that I think cannabis for me personally, and sounds like for others is kind of the gateway to forming those connections. Yeah. People call cannabis yeah. a gateway drug. I don't think that's the case. I think it's a gateway to expanding your kind of sense of togetherness somehow. somehow. Yeah. I, you know, I tried to explain that in the book some, <laughs> in some fashion, but that's great. I mean, that's a great way for you for you guys to connect, and I'm glad it's helped. What I want to go back to, Nathan, is something you said earlier. Where you're talking about cannabis at end of life, and the reason I bring this up is Alexandra's family went through something uh, last year where they lost someone uh, from cancer, and the, the end of life care was not great. It, it was very hard to to see how it was being uh, implemented. Uh, and I'm not going to say where or how, but it, it was it was tough to watch, and, and Alexandra got affected greatly by it. So I'm curious to hear from your point of view, from what you've seen from an end-of-life perspective, how does cannabis play a role in that, and, and do you see that becoming more mainstream, hopefully, as we go forward? Yeah. Well, you know, the end-of-life process in the United States is riddled with, with uh, indecision, because we oftentimes are so afraid of mortality that we run away from the conversation altogether. But I promise you, you're going to die. It doesn't matter if they upload you into some cyborg or whatever, you're going to die. And that's okay. So the first thing I always like to start with is to remind you that to die is actually a privilege. Like, I'm not saying it's better to be dead. What I mean is that you got to live here with the one condition that someday you're going to die. So the fact that you die is actually a reflection of the fact that you were allowed to live. You're allowed to be here. That's not going to end up in being like some, you know, carpe diem or whatever. I don't really care about that. But memento mori, remember you're going to die because that's actually the privilege, the greatest privilege. The way that we care for people in the United States at end of life really reflects a fear of mortality so much so that we don't even want to be buried in the ground to be eaten and consumed and repurposed by Mother Earth. We want to be embalmed with our jewelry and our suits. (laughs) We want to be buried in lead-lined caskets inside concrete tombs six feet under, you know, and that is a, a real shame. I mean, there's a lot of better ways for us to maybe do it. I'm not saying it's not the right way for, you know, that that's wrong for anybody to do it. But when you think of even the dying process and that, ex- that extension of the dying process and the sphere of mortality reflected in how we honor the dead, um, what we end up with is a system that will throw a trillion dollars at a person who's just dying before we actually let them die with any sort of grace and dignity. And we've all seen that happen. So my part of my mission, similar to birth, is to get the hell out of the way. Like we have to get better at dignifying this process. And it starts by reframing it as a privilege as opposed to a failure of the medical sciences that a person has to die. It's sad. It sucks. Nobody wants to talk about it but it's like not going away. It's like the thorn in your side. Like it's going to be there. You can't just numb it up over and over and over again with alcohol and with, with uh, denial. Yeah. I, I think in, in the book I say, you know, we, we spend so much time celebrating a person's life that we don't take time to celebrate their death. And, you know, 
to your point, the amount of money that we spend trying to keep people alive on machines when it's just their body, it's not their mind or spirit. It's, it's crazy to me. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, I saw it firsthand and Alexandra saw it firsthand. So I'm just curious, h- how do you integrate cannabis into, is it really just saying, you know, if you've never done it, you may want to try it kind of in your fi- last and final days? I mean, how, how have you seen it kind of implemented for folks that might be close to the end? Well, you know, you, you've used the, the term spiritual quite a few times. I consider myself a very deeply spiritual person. And when you are able to to not uh, not identify with what your brain is doing, with your the, the brain isn't necessarily the source of thoughts, but it is certainly like the, the, the holder of thoughts. And when you can detach from that and dissociate from that, it actually, I think, allows you to connect to something outside of your physical corpus. And when you're dying, um, that's really, I think that's really important because if you just sit in bed and you think my, my, my leg hurts, my leg hurts, my leg hurts because of that cancer in your leg, it's, it's going to be a lot harder, I think, to die like that, right? So what we do with morphine is we actually dissociate you from the pain so that you have no connection to the pain. But that's actually not what I, I experience with cannabis. Cannabis actually helps you reframe the pain. It helps you like develop a relationship to the pain. And I had this, I had this woman when I was in fellowship who was dying in the ICU at UC San Diego when I was in fellowship and she was Buddhist and Buddhist and Hinduist philosophies are actually quite intimately linked. And so I went down there and the family was like, you can't give her pain medicine. You can't give her the morphine because she's working through her Dharma. Like this is the, the process of sitting with your suffering as a part of the virtuous sort of humanity of you, you know, the, the Ericness part of that is actually suffering and living through this part of the process, which is the privilege of dying. And if you dissociate them from it, meaning you no longer see the pain as, as a part of you, then you can't do that work. And you're going to be through this sort of karmic, this, this, death and rebirth process you're gonna to have to live through whatever it is that you could otherwise process now i mean it's it sounds woo woo and everything this is a completely different way of looking at the dying process though so cannabis i think actually helps you lean into the pain i think it actually doesn't it doesn't make it that you don't have any pain signals to the to the brain it's a you can help develop a different relationship you can be a little bit more compassionate with yourself and I think that's why so many people, you know, get such benefit from THC and CBD, whether they're at the end of life or they have a chronic, you know, disc herniation or they have whatever, you know, chronic pain disorder or endometriosis or so many other pain disorders. Um, I think that if we could make, if we could make this a just, if we could just open up our minds and hearts, get past the 60s where there was like drugs are bad. If we could just get past that. The opportunities there are just so ripe. And I actually don't even like the regulation of these types of things. Again, it's a weed. It grows in anybody's backyard. Um, I don't like the idea of regulating because then you have somebody telling you how you can and can't use it. But I do have a lot of clients up in Humboldt County who are using Rick Simpson oil. And they're actually like, chemo's not working. Radiation's not working. We can't cut any more of this out. So Rick Simpson oil has been a lot of people's mainstay for their therapy. And a lot of them are doing quite well on it. So we as like doctors, like, yeah, there's rules. Yeah, there's the CDC and their, you know, the FDA and DEA and all this other stuff. But at the same time, like, I didn't take an oath to protect the DEA and the government policies. I took an oath to take care of people. 
And if I can get them some relief, even if just even if it just means that they have the autonomy to decide how they're going to treat their cancer with Rick Simpson oil, for example, I don't care if it works or not. They don't care if it works or not. They just want to make the decision that like this sounds better than chemo. And I'm not going to do chemo anyways, right? Yeah. So, you know, Rick Simpson is a special, you know, a special sort of, uh, for those who don't know, it's, it's basically a distillation of, of, of the whole cannabis plant, I believe, into That's a awesome. whole bunch of molecules and all sorts of things, right? So it probably is super anti-inflammatory. It probably is super nootropic in a lot of ways. I mean, there's probably a lot of good stuff in Rick Simpson oil. But even if they were just, hey, I want to smoke pot once in a while because it helps with nausea, why would we take that away from a person? I mean, I just don't understand. Meanwhile, we want to pump them full of antipsychotics and benzodiazepines and other anxiolytics and sedatives and morphine and opioids, which, again, they take you out of your pain. And we think that that means relieving suffering. But what if a person actually is okay with the pain? They just want to have some semblance of control. So this is obviously a super complicated conversation because I don't think anything is right or wrong for anybody in any circumstance. I actually think it really matters what is important to them. Like, what does pain mean to them? What does the end of life process look like to them? Like, what do they, what do they think is going to happen? Yeah. And if they think, hey, I'm going to have to work through my dharma, even at the very last moments when I'm cringing and grimacing, I can't have you take me out of that. That's important to me. Then maybe cannabis actually would be a really great option and for a lot of buddhists and hindus a hookah like that's actually what that's actually the medicine right there not for everybody but throw a little cannabis in there and and now they're also connecting intimately with their partners they might actually be laughing again i mean they might actually feel like clear even though the pain is still there there's just a reframing of their relationship to the pain that's amazing yeah and again i think it goes back to look why am I doing this? Why did I write a book? Why am I doing a podcast? Uh, not because I'm making money off it. Believe me. <laughs> I will, yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, look, I'm an accountant. You're a doctor. I, I did a podcast the other day with another professional and we we're talking about, you know, how do you change people's minds and people's viewpoints? You know, because people think, well, it's about education, but yes, that's true. It's also about the fact that this is still federally illegal. And because of that, I can't yeah. market anything related to this on a lot of platforms like Facebook, like Amazon, because of that illegality. So how do we change this? How do we get into, and again, that's part of why I'm doing this. And I assume it's part of why you do what you do, but I know cannabis isn't the main focus of your practice, but how do we change people's minds? Just the average person out there that maybe tried it back in the sixties or seventies, but haven't, hasn't done it since, or has never tried it because they're scared. I mean, what do you see Nathan as kind of the, the gateway, so to speak, to making cannabis more acceptable and, and kind of rational in this society. You know, what I think is sorely lacking in most avenues in our society is actual conversation. You know, like if there's this legislator out there who is like hell bent on making it so that cannabis is not going to be available to the masses, look at Kentucky. That's my home state. The legislators there are not, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to do cannabis. Even though cannab- hemp and cannabis was probably the primary export of the state of Kentucky for most of the last hundred years, up until like the fifties and sixties, I suspect that into and tobacco. Um, but you know, if you were to go to Mitch McConnell or whoever, I honestly don't really care about politics at all. Um, because I, I don't really trust anything. Most people say who are in positions of power, 
But if that person was going to be the one who, who gave this the, the go ahead and they're like hell bent, just like with anybody, it doesn't matter what layer of society or what, how much power they have or whatever else. If somebody is apprehensive about trying something like a cannabis, like smoking cannabis or whatever, I would really just want to have a conversation. Like, what is it? Like, what is it about this? And a lot of people will say, you know, my mom and dad had drug issues or I saw my friend have this bad thing happen with opioids or whatever. And we've just been conditioned to believe that all of these drugs are just equally bad. I have never used opioids. I've never snorted cocaine. I've never used any cocaine for that matter. I have never done anything that I have seen completely trash people's lives. Crystal meth. Like there's some drugs out there that are like a hard no for me. On the other hand, cannabis has done so much for me. And I didn't even smoke any cannabis until I was in med school. So I would love to find out what was a person's apprehensions about doing it. And then we have this conversation. I think that's the reason that your book and your podcast are so important, Eric. Is like, we're just having a conversation. It would actually be really interesting. I don't know if you've had anybody come on who's like a hard no. And just say like, what is it? And not to convince them, not to like, yeah, did you? How did it go? I'm curious. So it was my buddy. I think his name ended up being uh, Theo Sanders after the Detroit Lions. (laughs) He's a big Lions fan. (laughs) So, yeah, but he's never tried it. I've never forced it. But, yeah, we had the conversation of, well, why are you against it? And it was because of what you just said. You know, he grew up in probably the 80s, early 90s, where they were throwing the scrambled eggs or the, the eggs on TV saying, this is your brain on drugs. And he just never got into it. And by the end of it, he was like, okay, you know, now I get why you've done it and maybe one day I'll try it. But at least we had the conversation right to your point. Yeah. 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 So, you know, yeah, you know, it's tough. It's tough. (laughs) It is tough. It is tough. And it's, you also don't want somebody who's reluctant to do it to then do it and feel like resentful that they did it. Like it needs to be a hell yes. It doesn't matter what you do. Like even with like sex when we were younger, like if it's on a hell yes, then it's probably not the right time to do it. Um, I mean, if, if that, that serves us now as well. If it's not a hell yes, you don't just have sex for the purpose. But my point being that a lot of these things, we, we're sort of conditioned to believe that we're supposed to do it because the masses are doing it or because the doctor says it's the right thing to do. There's a lot of people out there that maybe shouldn't use cannabis either. But it shouldn't be because somebody told you that you're not allowed to do it. That's where I kind of have a hard time with the conversation. The same goes for psychedelics. The same goes for home birth or natural birth or whatever. You, you can't have a midwife attend your birth because some like schmuck in your state capital said you're not allowed. Like, since when is that something that they have any right to tell you you should or shouldn't do? I am um, my my big takeaway or my sort of summary comment here is if you're feeling compelled to try a, a novel therapeutic, although there's nothing novel about cannabis, just be clear. If there is something um, out there that you're feeling called to explore, start having conversations, find podcasts like yours, and really kind of investigate inwardly. Like, what is it about this? Is this something, is this a spiritual thing? Is this an emotional thing? Is this a mental thing? Is it physically that I'm, I don't know, you just feel like called to do it? Do your research, talk to really responsible people. I am very responsible and I do a lot of irresponsible things according to the people who tell me what's right and wrong. Explore those things. And if it's something that you actually feel like, I don't care what they say, I'm compelled to do this, there's probably a way to find out, you know, to find somebody who can help facilitate that for you. I think the psychedelic revolution is kind of in that space right now where it's like, everybody's hush-hush, but everybody's also doing LSD and psilocybin and everything else. So, um, and it's, it's for good reason. And people are going in with the right set and setting. I mean, they're really using it intentionally. Not everybody. I go to Burning Man as well. 
And there are people out there ripped out on Coke and then they're dropping acid. And it's like, man, you are opening yourself up to a world of pain. I don't mean physical pain. I mean, like, you might be opening some doors you're not willing, you're not able to close later. Um, on the other hand, just like with cannabis, if you go in with the right intentions and you have it from a responsible source, I actually think that's really important. It could actually totally change your mind and, and change your life. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, as I said, as I said many times, if there's one thing that can bring us all together in this crazy society in this day and age, I think it's cannabis. Whether you're Republican, Democrat, black, white, young, old, no matter how much money you make, it's the one topic I think we can all agree because anyone that does it knows the benefits to them. And, and it's just, why isn't everyone doing this? Hopefully that changes going forward, but yeah, you know, yeah. we'll see. It's a, Amen. but uh, I appreciate you joining and um, you know, really think your message is a good one. And I hope that, you know, you continue to do what you do and be successful at it. And I know you got uh, some vacation time coming up, so I hope you enjoy it, but really appreciate you joining us, Nathan. Uh, where can people check out your website, your podcast, uh, if you're still going to do it, what, what's kind of the, uh, the uh, links here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. And I know how hard it is to build a brand, especially as a podcast. So it's always an honor to be brought on other people's shows. Um, my my practice website is belovedholistics.com. Uh, beloved, like beloved, holistics.com. And then the course I, I mentioned, the Pregnancy and Postpartum Education Program, which does have a whole unit for dads. It has a whole unit for cannabis and psychedelics and other drugs. Um, it is unlike anything out there. There's a lot of childbirth education classes, but it's, really there's a there's there's a lot of reasons to choose this one over others i'll just say that um you can find that at bornfreemethod.com i've got the uh logo on my hat right there and my podcast is called the holistic obgyn and we actually have a lot of conversations like this um it might actually be really fun to have you on the show and talk to, to get a little deeper on on cannabis so if you're open for that it might Absolutely. be uh it might be fun Absolutely. Yeah. I'm done with OBGYNs for, for the time being, but uh, happy, to, happy to join your well, your It's not your typical UN podcast, yeah. I can promise you that. Yeah. I know, <laughs> in that sense, yeah. No, I've, I've had three. Yeah. We're officially yeah. done. But uh, no, man, it was yeah. great, and, and I'm glad we were able to have a conversation like this. Um, I wish you the best, and yeah, let's stay in touch. But thanks for joining, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. But appreciate you coming. Yeah, on. absolutely. Thanks again, Eric. All I appreciate right. your time. Thanks, Nathan. Take care.